Welcome to A Song from the Heart Beats the Devil Every Time, a podcast that looks at kids' film and television through interviews with the people who brought these projects to life. I'm your host, Kayla Janice. Today's episode is one I've been working on since December of 2020, and the bulk of the interviews for it were done around that time. It's a film that's very dear to me, namely Stanley Kramer's 1971 film, Bless the Beasts and Children. Like all my favorite films, it's about misfits, people who don't fit in, who've been rejected, who've resigned themselves to defeat, until some catalyst tests who they really are and commands them to take control of their own destinies. So many cult kids' films follow this basic theme of empowerment. And in this case, the task this motley crew of kids find themselves challenged with is one that's greatly aligned with the concerns of the counterculture of the early 70s when it was made. It is absolutely, like many of Stanley Kramer's films, a message film. This is the man who made Judgment at Nuremberg, Inherit the Wind, On the Beach, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And the message is a pretty traumatic one, but I love bummer movies, and so a a lot of -of coming-of-age films, even though there's a heavy focus on the triumphant moments of these stories and the strength of character that emerges, there's often a real bummer at the core of them. Someone dies, a family member, a friend, a pet, maybe just a dead kid on the railroad tracks. In this case, the traumatic incident that propels the narrative is a group of misfit boys begrudgingly abandoned to the social hell of summer camp who witness the annual buffalo cull in which herds of buffalo are penned up and killed for sport, an event so nauseating, so indicative of a widespread moral failure that they determine to rise above their status as the so-called bedwetters to do something, to commit a symbolic gesture that will change them forever. I don't want any feedback from any of you guys later on. When we let those buffalo go, even to save them, we break the law, and don't forget it. Well, a law ain't big enough for us Westerners. (laughs) Now, I want you guys to understand this. That's all we talked about when we came back yesterday. Okay. Then I guess we have to go, huh? For this is the marrow bone of every American adventure story. Some men with guns going somewhere to do something dangerous. Whether it be to scout a continent in a covered wagon, to weld the Union in a screaming wilderness, to save the world for democracy, to vault seas and rip up jungles by the roots and sow our seed and flag and spirit, this has ever been the essence of our melodrama. Some men with guns going somewhere to do something dangerous. And so they were. That was an excerpt from Glendon Swartout's book, Bless the Beasts and Children, which came out in 1970 and immediately generated interest for a feature film. 
Whether or not this book was ever intended for children or pre-teens, it was nonetheless adopted into school curriculums throughout the 1970s. And the film inherited that distinction, regardless of whether it was Stanley Kramer's intention to make a film for that age bracket or not. Glendon Swartud, who passed away in 1992, wrote 17 novels, among them Where the Boys Are and The Shootist, which would become John Wayne's last film. He wrote a few westerns and was awarded by western associations for his work in the genre. And the tone and language of the western is very much a strong energy in Bless the Beasts and Children. And it was a unique time for westerns. The genre had really flipped over and started to question its own mythology. There was less definable good and bad. The reality of rape and genocide became more a part of Western narratives that acknowledge colonial guilt and the lengths people will go to to sustain their own mythologies, which is very tied into their sense of patriotism. Characters in these films fell more into the realm of anti-heroes, guys who might do something good, but it would never be enough to obliterate all the bad they'd done in their rough and ragged lifetime which is perhaps why it's so poignant to take this kind of tone and refocus the lens to animals and children with their associations of innocence, which refuels what had become a very dark genre with a cautious optimism. Both the film and the book start with Cotton's dream. Cotton dreamed of them being penned like beasts and murdered by their own parents. All of them cried out in a babble of id, ego, odor, blood, and the madness of men while Dion Warwick ululated soul and Roy Acuff sang of sin and redemption. It was a catharsis by voice and in vain. It will turn out to be a premonitory dream. Now our, uh... Our last and lowest award doesn't really have an Indian name, but to help the boys up the ladder of achievement, we've given it a name that, well, they're going to want to get rid of pretty fast. Cabin four, the Bedwetters, right? The kids in the film come from affluent families, and they're misfits, outcasts, delinquents that get sent to this camp to straighten them out. You send us a boy, we'll send you a cowboy, says the camp's slogan. They are designated the bedwetters when they repeatedly place last in every camp activity, and one of them actually is a bedwetter. A series of flashbacks shows what led to each of the boys being there, a trope common in prison movies, which the summer camp can certainly be an analog for. Well, here we are. You like it? <laughs> well, I haven't seen it yet. What's the difference? Your mother saw it and liked it. Now she can say my son the cowboy. Hey, are they going to laugh at me because I'm fat? I'm fat too. Well, they laugh at you. I'm a comedian, Stoop. Now listen to me. Remember, be a good boy and behave yourself, you hear me? And if you don't do anything that I wouldn't do, you're gonna have a terrible time. <laughs> now, uh, don't worry about a thing. I'll grease it up for you good. The success of the film would depend greatly on its young cast. And though Bill Mooney was a known entity at the time, most notably from his starring role as Will Robinson on Lost in Space, one of the other kids, the class clown character, was played by Miles Chapin, who also had an acting background, although less high profile at the time than that of Bill Mooney. Now, most people listening to this probably know that I'm mostly known as a horror writer, so for those people, I'll just say that Miles Chapin was in Toby Hooper's The Fun House. And let's not forget about French postcards, but 
Let's go back a couple decades earlier. A few years before Bless the Beast and Children, Miles Chapin had been one of the stars of Frank Perry's Ladybug Ladybug, which also features an ensemble cast of kids left to their own devices dealing with horrific subject matter, in that case the looming threat of a nuclear attack during the height of the Cold War. It takes place during a normal school day, which is disrupted by an air raid siren, and no one knows whether it's a drill or not. The kids are instructed to clasp hands and walk each other home. And of course, during that walk, things go terribly awry. Here's Miles Chapin talking about that experience. I guess Frank's been gone long enough that people are now rediscovering him, you know, a new generation of filmmakers. And that, while it was one of his more obscure films, probably the most obscure film, it's actually very interesting of its time, of its, of its, 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 its moment in time, I should say. Because he did David and Lisa, which is like the, the, the classic independent American film. And then he did Ladybug, Ladybug. And it was, uh, I mean, it was remarkable. It's um, definitely about what happens to kids on their own. You know, Lord of the Flies, Ladybug, Ladybug. That was not marketed to kids, but Bless the Bees and Children was. Well, not really. <clears throat> not at the beginning. Okay. I mean, the original poster was a takeoff on war is not good for children and other living things. Remember that poster? So it was kind of trying to do that, appealing to grown-ups, 1960s, you know, kind of hippie memorabilia. Because, you know, there's a real green message in it. There's a real peace message in it. Um, but I wasn't, but maybe by the end, when they were just trying to squeeze money out of it, they were, you know, uh, marketing it for children. But I, I never really got that feeling about it at all. Some newspapers at the time made notice of the fact that the film was not Kramer's usual superstar cast. After all, his films had him working with names like Sidney Poitier, Spencer Tracy, Burt Lancaster, Montgomery Clift, Marlena Dietrich, Richard Widmark, Judy Garland, Fred Astaire, Tony Curtis, Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Mickey Rooney, and so many others. But with Bless the Beast and Children, there was an attempt to keep the emphasis on character and story, rather than star power to sell the film. Although Bill Mooney's fame would certainly be utilized in the film's promotion, as I'll discuss later. You know, it was, I mean, Stanley Kramer, you've got to see this in, in, the, in the context of Stanley's work, you know, his kind of pugnacious, you know, I'm not going to say messages, but his pictures had a strong content of reality and, and kind of politics and social commentary in them, you know. Uh, I mean, he would have been among the first people to say, if you got a message, you know, use Western Union, don't make a movie out of it. But if you look at his movies, unless it was like funds up comedies like Mad, 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 Mad World, you know, they all had some, you know, especially the later ones around this time, RPM, Oklahoma Crew, you know. All right, you guys, open up. Good morning, President. Uh, Mr. President, to you. Yeah, well, what are you bringing? An open mind. Tell me about the casting process. Like, like sure, Stanley Kramer sure. said that he interviewed like 500, auditioned 500 kids and Maybe. made them all have to, he said, he said he spent a couple hours with each kid and wanted to get yeah. them to tell them what their hangups were with their parents. <laughs> you remember anything like that? Sure, yeah. Um, so the audition process for me, I think was a little bit different than for everybody else because I had been, somewhat of a child actor, except my, my, my parents never really pushed it, you know? I mean, I was a, I, my parents were in the arts, and I was kind of the clown in the family, and I was very fat, and, you know, I was a character. And um, 
I went to a progressive day school in New York City, uh, still there called the Dalton School. And one of my classmates, uh, her mother was the daughter of a very, very famous uh, Broadway director named George Abbott. And um, uh, she was an agent at the William Morris office, okay? And uh, of course, because you know I was friends with the daughter and Judy was her name, Judy Abbott. I mean, she sort of knew me. So I went, after eighth grade, I went to boarding school. I went to a, a fancy New England boarding school, which in my family was like everybody, all the guys went to boarding school. A lot of the women too, but mostly the men. So I was in my uh, second year at uh, Phillips Exeter Academy. And I went back to my, my dormitory room and there was, a, there was a telegram in the door. And it was from Judy Abbott. And she said, would you call me please at this number? So there was a payphone in the basement of the dorm. So I went down and I called her and she said, okay, listen, I, I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta cut to the chase, I'm very busy. And I said, okay, fine, what's up? She said, are you still fat? And I said, um, yeah, I'm still fat. And then she said, are you still funny? And I went, well, I mean, I, I, you can be the judge of that, but yeah, sure, I'm still funny. Of course I'm still funny. And she said, okay, I have a, I, I've got a part for you in a movie. This, you are so perfect for this. I can't believe this. You've got to come down day after tomorrow or next week, whatever it was. You've got to come down to New York and you've got to meet Stanley Kramer. Then I took a plane to New York and I took a tech cab in my uncle's house. And William Morris had sent over a copy of the book by Glendon Swarthout. So I figured I'd better read the book, you know, the meeting was the next day. So I sit down and I open up the book. It says, for Miles, who was there and told me about it. So I opened this up, I said, this is uncanny. I said, this is like, you know, woo woo. Miles Swarthoot had gone to the Hidden Valley Ranch for Boys near Prescott, Arizona, renamed Box Canyon Boys Camp in the book and film, which itself has a long tradition in Westerns and was known as the cowboy capital of the world. Glendon Swarthoot witnessed the buffalo call here in 1966. Okay, so I read the book, or I read as much of it as I could. And then the next day I had a meeting with, with Stanley Kramer at, at the William Morris office. And he wasn't psychoanalyzing me. He just basically said, so, you know, why are you here? What's going on? And I said, well, you know, this and that and the other thing. And he goes, well, you know, this part is like the son of this stand-up comedian. And I went, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I read it. He goes, well, you know, do you do anything like that? I said, oh, please. You know, I, my brothers and I, we're always riffing on shit and, and he said, well, what kind of stuff is it? So I like launched into this shtick, you know, that I would do with my brothers. What time is it? My boy, the old professor can tell. Just by looking at the moon, what's the stars, what's the direction we are headed in, what is wristwatch, just what time it is. What time is it? And he was just sitting in like this. He said, well, that's great. That's wonderful. And two days later, there was another telegram in the door of my, you know, my room saying, congratulations, you've got the part. You know, you're going to get paid, give me a call, and you know, that was it. I mean, it was very simple and very easy. Bill Mooney, who plays Teft, the film's most assured delinquent, also did not go through the usual round of auditions, having been a prolifically working actor and staple of teen magazines for over a decade by that point. And his casting may have even occurred quite naturally to Kramer, as Mooney had appeared in an earlier film Kramer produced called A Child is Waiting in 1963. The same year Miles Chapin appeared in Frank Perry's Ladybug Ladybug, as it happens, directed by John Cassavetes, and featuring Kramer's usual star-studded cast, including Judy Garland, Burt Lancaster, Jenna Rollins, and even an uncredited Butch Patrick, not yet known as Eddie Munster. Here's Bill Mooney talking about getting cast in the film. The book was released um, quite 
um, close to when we actually started the film. I guess Stanley and a lot of other studios were bidding on, on the rights to the project right after it originally published in 1970. Um, we started filming in, in June of 1970. So I had not heard of or read the book before um, the project, but I, I read the book after meeting with Stanley in his office at Columbia Studios. We had a, a simple meet and greet chat. And then, um, then I read the book after I'd booked the gig. What was he like as a director? What was your relationship like with him? Stanley was great uh, in terms of the, the, the misfit dings, the cast, the main six of us, uh, we all called him coach. <laughs> and he was uh, very strong when he needed to be strong, but uh, he always had like a little twinkle in his eye. His, uh, his crew loved him. He was... Um, he, uh, yeah, he was firm when he needed to be firm, but it, he and I had discussed Taft, you know, briefly in advance and uh, I knew what I was doing and it was what he, he wanted me to do. So I didn't really, I didn't personally need or receive much, you know, personal direction from, from Stanley. Uh, we knew that, that Taft was going to be um, a doer, but not a shower. And that in the few times when he did show, so to speak, it would have a big impact. Um, but for most of the stuff, Teft was reasonably internal and kind of sent his own self somewhere else when things were uh, uh, happening around him. Miles Chapin also had tremendous respect for Stanley Kramer as a director. He was an amazing guy, an amazing, amazing, charismatic guy, okay? All of us were completely in his thrall. I mean, we would have walked off of a cliff for him. And he was feisty. He was pugnacious. He was whip smart. He knew exactly what he wanted. He knew how to make movies. He produced his own movies. He was in charge of that set. I mean, everybody on that crew was one of the happiest crews I've ever seen. But um, I think he got a huge huge kick out of the fact that the only Jewish character in his movie was like a Mayflower wasp, you know, whose summer home was in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And he had to find me at, you know, a boys boarding school in New England. I think he just, you know, he just got a big, huge kick out of that. In the book, Chapin's character Shecker has tantrums, usually regarding what he perceives as anti-Semitic persecution, which are countered with Holocaust jokes. Gas him, his cabin mates all yell in unison whenever he gets out of hand. But Stanley Kramer, who was Jewish himself, did not carry this Holocaust humor over into the film. It was a ridiculous summer, I mean. This is Bill Mooney again. We were all on our own, with the exception of Daryl Glazer, whose mom was with him. Literally everyone else in the cast was on their own. My best friend, who's a... 16 months older than me was appointed my legal guardian because he had turned 18 on June 2nd. <laughs> so he and I were uh, pretty, you know, it was, it was a coming of age summer in a way. Um, but uh, Mark Vahanian was under the uh, care of the second or first director. Shel Schrager was his guardian. 
uh, Mark Vahanian remains a good friend. And, um, and even though he was only uh, 14, he was just, he was brilliant and so much fun to hang with. Miles was appointed, I don't remember who was Miles' guardian, but he was on his own. Bobby Kramer was on his own. And Barry was separate, you know, Barry uh, Robbins was very much separate from the rest of us. Barry Robbins played Cotton, who was the de facto leader of the group. And not without reason. Aside from the character being written as more driven and determined than the others, Barry Robbins was by all accounts ten years older than the rest of the teens cast as the bedwetters. But this inevitably made him the outsider, in a group comprised of outsiders. He had to shave his chest nightly to appear young enough for the role, and the concept of disguising his age is even poignantly addressed in the script itself. Who are you going out with tonight? You know, Tony Mathis. Oh, he's a kid. Carefully, maybe your father. Not mine. I only have one. Tony will probably live here for a while, that's all. Like, what's his name? This may be for keeps. Better be. How old am I this time? Twelve? Soon I'll be ten. Then eight. <laughs> oh, pretty soon I'll disappear completely. No son at all. You'd like that, wouldn't you? He was uh, very private. Um, he was uh, an actor who needed to kind of prep himself quite dramatically before he worked. Uh, and anyway, I mean, it's not that we didn't get along with Barry, but he was an entity unto his own. Here's Miles Chapin on the dynamic between the boys on set. Uh, but then, of course, like you get a group of boys together, it's going to be very hierarchical and you, you want to be you want to be cool. You want to be part of the group, you know, but there's a certain amount of hazing and humiliation and who's on top, who's on the bottom and this kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, we all got along, but it was it was, you know, there's there's there was always a dynamic with groups and kids, especially when they're being treated like little movie stars. You know, so. Yeah. Hopefully we didn't abuse that privilege too much. I mean, he cast us very well. We really inhabited those characters. We really did. I mean, Bill Mooney to this day is an extremely cool guy. You know, you can't touch him. Uh, Miles and I were very, very close. Um, we got along great. You know, he used to. We were we were smoking cigarettes back in those days when we did Bless the Beasts, and uh, he used to he used to roll a cigarette in one hand on a horse, just like a. I mean, here's this New York guy who comes from the Steinway family. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, here's this, the epitome of the Mayflower. <laughs> and here's this guy on a horse rolling cigarettes with one hand while he's galloping down the hill. It was very impressive. One of the key conceits of the book is that each of the bedwetters is perceived to some extent as being emotionally disturbed. All have frustrations about being misunderstood that are both generational for example, Goodenow, played by Daryl Glazer, whose nocturnal bedwetting is interpreted by his Olympian 50s-style father as a sign of latent homosexuality, and lateral, as in the violent sibling rivalry between Lally 1, played by Bob Kramer, and Lally 2, played by Mark Vahanian. I want to get right down to the matter of sibling rivalry. Know what that means? Well, it's when two brothers like yourselves are very competitive and constantly vying for attention. Steve, I want you to tell me exactly what you think about Billy. I hate him. 
He stinks. He's a pest. My parents give him everything he wants because they think he's so goddamn cute. He and his security pillow. He's the favorite all the time, and if I touch him just once, wham, I get it. I wish he was dead. I'd cut him up, dig a hole, put the pieces in, let the worms eat him up, and I'd never have to see him again. Then I'd stop banging my head against the wall. Bob Kramer said of Stanley Kramer, Stanley Kramer was great to work for. I was not very close with my dad. We never had a father and son relationship. But working on that film with Mr. Kramer, and no, he is not related to me, was one of the best times of my life. He was kind of like the dad I wish I did have. This receptiveness of a father figure, or a sibling, or a friend, is exactly the kind of consideration that Bless the Beasts and Children begs for in determining whether a disturbed child can turn around into an empathic and motivated adult, and ultimately, these kids become a lifeline for each other. But a significant omission in the film concerning Lally One, which would have been inconsistent with the overall messaging of the film, is that early in the book, his anger manifests in animal killing. Quote, Lally One tried to sneak a letter home. He would not have reached his parents in any case, since they had just reconciled and shipped their sons to camp and jetted off for a camera safari in Kenya. Cotton caught him and tore up the letter. Stephen Lally Jr. had a temper tantrum. Screaming at the top of his lungs, he rose from his bed on hands and knees and rocked, butting his head against the wall. The others went to supper without him. When they returned, he had killed all the pets. Goodenow's lizards and beetles and spiders and snake which he kept in cardboard boxes under his bed, Stephen Lally Jr. had let out and stomped on the floor. His brother Billy's pets were a hop toad and a baby rabbit, the latter crippled because one of its hind legs had been partially bitten off, probably by a coyote. The hop toad he squashed, the baby jackrabbit he cornered, and pretending it was his baby brother, battered to death with a branding iron. And so this journey to save the buffalo has an added redemptive quality for someone like Lolly One, who could have gone a very different way. But just in terms of like the kids, like saying like, because, you know, they're described in the book and in the movie as like emotionally disturbed, you know? So it was like, when you read it, did you see the kids as emotionally disturbed or did they just seem like normal kids to you? Uh, well, it depends on, on the meaning of the, the personal meaning of the phrase emotionally disturbed. This is Miles Chapin talking. I mean, this was the 60s. You know, this this was what's going on now in the streets of our big cities was the last time this happened was then, you know, and this was a time of sweeping change. This was a time of social upheaval. And this was a time when youth was empowered as it had never been empowered before. And so that was a large part of it also. Here's Bill Moomy talking about the changes happening at that time. It was a very, very us versus them period in our history. You know, uh, it, it actually felt similar to today, really. Uh, Nixon, the Vietnam War, the protests, uh, the police and National Guard brutality, uh, counter that with Woodstock and flower powers and hippies and the uh, counterculture uh, arts movement. Um, Altamont had, had just happened. Uh, the civil rights movement and the Black Panthers party was still new. Uh, the Manson murders were fresh. Uh, it was a very, very divided time. And it was pretty clear uh, 
at least for me and my crowd of people that I grew up with uh, here in Los Angeles, um, whose side we were on. And uh, the, the film, the script anyway, certainly represented uh, an awareness regarding balance. And uh, I felt that it was, a, it was a very valid thing to be a part of. I mean, I was only you know, 16 or 17 years old, I, I can't say that I was thinking about running for office or anything, but, you know, I had, I had marched many times in protests against the Vietnam War. I was a professional musician at that time, gigging quite a lot. Um, I had touched Bobby Kennedy a few months before he was assassinated. Um, it, was, it was a real dramatic time and it, it does, it does resonate today in multiple similar ways. And it's funny because one of, one of Stanley's whole things was kind of, and I don't know if he was joking about this, or he made jokes about it, but like a lot of jokes, there was a lot of truth to it. He used to say, oh, you kids, you kids, you just, you won't let me in. You're the Pepsi generation and you won't let me in, I'm too damn old. And he would say, yeah, yeah, old man, you know, like this, you know. And it was just, he was kind of like he wanted to be part of that youth movement, and yet he wasn't. And I think there was that for him, but it just sort of spurred him on. I mean, if you look at where he went with his career, leaving Hollywood, movies like The Runner Stumbles, you know, he really, he always was a maverick in Hollywood, but Hollywood didn't really want his kind of maverickhood because of maybe where he came from in Hollywood, you know. He also, he wasn't like a pot smoker like Robert Altman. I mean, he wasn't like doing these kind of woo-woo crazy movies. He was, a, he was a, a picture maker. You know, he made pictures. I took a 200% cut in my salary at the time to accept this, that film. It resonated as important to me. Uh, it was a big step forward for me from uh, Disney films and Lost in Space. Um, plus, it, it, more importantly, it had something... Uh, important to say regarding guns and human beings and animals. Beyond the meat, nothing was wasted. Heads were to be mounted, hooves made into ashtrays, tails into fly whisks, hides into auto robes. A distinctive coin purse, it was learned, could be fashioned from the scrotum of a bull. And one by one, driven to exhaustion, Trapped by fence and horses and bewilderment, under an immaculate sky, the mythic creatures died. They died not in mercy, not in the majesty which was their due, but as the least of life, accursed of nature. They died in the dust of insult and the spittle of lead. There was more here than profaned the eye or ear or nose or heart. There was more here than mere destruction. The American soul itself was involved, its anthropology. We are born with buffalo blood on our hands. Environmental issues, animal rights issues, civil rights, all this kind of stuff. Like I noticed when I was a kid, I was born in 72. And I know that like a lot of the cartoons of that era will have a lot of those issues in them. Right. And right. so was the were these kind of issues still considered fringe issues at the time or was this really everyday discourse for everybody that's a really really good question and i think it changed year by year by year um i think all that stuff started as fringe issues but they moved more mainstream and more
more mainstream. I mean, today, you know, you go into a supermarket and there's a whole organic aisle that just tells you where we are, you know, and you, you read the business pages and a lot of it is about alternative meat companies, you know, and that wouldn't happen without what happened then. You know, that's, that's steps in the progress of that. But it was still it was pretty nascent, you know. I mean, wasn't this the uh, 50th anniversary of Earth Day, you know, 1970 Earth Day? So a lot of it came from that. But it was, it was the animal rights, not as much. That happened later. I mean, there was no, like, PETA back then. But the idea that this resource that's actually a great American symbol of these buffalo, you know, were being slaughtered in this fashion, really, and the uselessness of them, air quotes on that, you know, this is what the character is identified with. Hey, Buffalo, we're gonna set you free. You hear that? You dings, like us. We're your friends. You know, because we were the bedwetters, we were the, the useless people in this camp. And so we identified with these beasts that were just being sent out for slaughter. I mean, that's that's the, the dream sequence that opens the movie up, too. I mean, it's that's that's all what it's about. But the message was very important because it, they really were drawing lottery tickets to slaughter these beautiful animals for no reason. And that, oh, I mean, yes, when you see that in the film, the impact of seeing those animals murdered is uh, very powerful and it needs to be you know that's that that's very important that was bill mooney just speaking and here's miles chapin again talking about the practicalities of shooting the scenes with the buffalo did you know by the way that that we were banned from shooting in arizona at a certain point we had to go to catalina island to shoot the sequences with the buffalo did you know that oh no i mean i i, I know that a lot of it was shot in arizona but i didn't know that you most of it yeah <laughs> outside of Prescott, Arizona, uh, which is where it was set. Uh, there's a, uh, the Box Canyon Boys Camp, I think it's called in the movie. They actually, there was a, a, a camp and they, the whole camp became our set. So for the first section of the filming, we were there with all those, you know, extras and doing all those sequences, you know, at the exteriors of the camp. Then the state of Arizona would not allow us to shoot any Buffalo sequences in Arizona when they, I, I don't know if that happened while we were shooting, if they sort of glommed onto that or sort of came to the realization of what we were really doing or afterwards, but or beforehand. But it doesn't really matter because the whole um, location, the whole crew relocated to Santa Catalina Island off of Long Beach, California. And all the, all the sequences with the buffalo were shot there because apparently in the 20s, somebody brought a pair of buffalo, a male and a female, to Catalina to shoot some Western or, you know, a, half a dozen of them and they let them go and and they now is a large population you know buffalo in order to get those stampede sequences it took a lot to get those buffalo moving i think we we set off the stampede twice on two successive days and they had maybe you know because every camera on a hollywood movie has to have a camera crew so there's like three or four guys with each camera right um so if they're using multi-cameras which as an actor, I always love multi-cameras. I mean, I love, like, I worked with Milos Foreman a lot, and he always used multiple cameras when he could because he was very observatory. So, like, you had to be, you know, like, if you're in a scene, you know, in a boardroom or a party, you everybody was 
acting, for lack of a better word, all the time because you it wasn't like you know bullshit, bullshit, my close up, bullshit, my close up. Um, so anyway, uh, so first of all, getting all these these beasts in the corral that's one thing. You know, we had wranglers on horseback doing that, burying the cameras, knowing where they were going to go, and then what they did was they buried air hoses because they found that the one thing that would spook these buffalo was the sound of rushing air. You know, like a, like the sound in a scuba tank when you just turn the valve and you get this loud, whooshy noise. So they had periodically these air hoses buried. So whatever it was that set them off running, it was those air hoses that got them going. And then somehow in the editing, that's what editing's all about. I think we did it twice. Between the two days doing this, they got all the footage that they needed. From what I understand, the, the movie itself, um contributed to those practices, not necessarily being like shut down, but being uh, the sport being taken out of it, the sporting aspect and the spectacle, like where you couldn't, you couldn't, you could no longer have audiences like coming to watch it and stuff like that. It, it actually did create a moratorium on that. Um, I can't remember how many years that, that that whole process of the lottery and shooting them uh, was, you know, frozen, was, was not available. Uh, and we all felt very successful about that. One of the most powerful ways to transmit a message in those times, as Bill Moomy certainly knew, and Stanley Kramer increasingly recognized, was through music. And the music for Bless the Beasts and Children would become key to the film's legacy. Bill Moomy had already been a working musician for six years by the time the film was released, and I asked him why he hadn't contributed music to the film himself, which turned out to be an inappropriate question on a number of levels, because first of all, he had contributed a song which can be heard in the film, and he had composed an additional song that hadn't been used, but which thankfully is preserved on the album Lost But Not Really by Redwood, Moomy's band with Paul Gordon and Gary David from 1969 to 1974. I, I actually did co-write a song that is in the film. It's just a brief a cappella chorus when the kids are driving up uh, a montage of the highway, but that, that's a song that I wrote. Open your eyes, it's a beautiful morning. Open your eyes, it's a beautiful day. No need to wonder, One more time. Open your eyes, it's a beautiful morning. Open your eyes, it's a beautiful day. No need to wander, take the sleepy from your eyes. Haven't you heard it's a beautiful day, a beautiful day? Ultimately, songwriting and composing duties for the film went to the team of Barry DeVarzone and Perry Botkin Jr., who had worked with Stanley Kramer on his earlier film, RPM. 
I knew of Perry Botkin Jr. through his work as an arranger with Harry Nilsson. From Nilsson's earliest days of songwriting when he was still providing unreleased tunes as background music for episodes of I Spy, right up to their collaboration on the music for the 1981 Christmas special, Ziggy's Gift. And of course, from the short-lived animated series Kid Power, itself a huge influence on this very podcast, with its emphasis on child empowerment within an exploration of topical issues like race, gender, class, and environmentalism, and backed by a huge musical presence in the form of the Curbstones, a rotating band of kid singers named for their patron, producer, and label boss, Mike Curb. Barry Dvorzen's film credits are legion, although some cult film fans may know him best from his iconic score for Walter Hill's The Warriors. But in 1970, Barry Dvorzen was new to the field of film composing, and his collaborations with Stanley Kramer, who was then looking for a younger sound, catapulted him into a very prolific career when the theme song he wrote for Bless the Beasts and Children was nominated for an Academy Award, performed by one of the biggest pop groups in the world, The Carpenters. I uh, had a very successful career as a songwriter, producer, had my own record company. I sold it all to Warner Brothers. I decided uh, I'd like to try my hand at uh, film. So I went around and tried to sell myself and the great composer, Don Costa, told me, Barry, if you're trying to get them to use your songs, you're wasting your time. In the, in the film industry, you've got to be able to score the films. And then you have a shot at the main title or the songs. But uh, ju just to think that they're going to use your song, unless you are a very famous artist, is not going to happen. So because of my certain lack of experience in that arena, uh, I enlisted Perry. I said, look, you've got uh, an arranging background that I don't have, so uh, we should team up and uh, go after it. You know, I'll write the songs and you, you can work with me on the, the dramatic score. And that's how the relationship started. I guess it was, it was so much more common then, it seems to have like a theme song for a movie that's got like the name of the movie in it and is like a lyrical, like a vocal theme song and stuff than it is now. How did you decide on that song, the Blessed Peace and Children theme, and were you involved in like choosing the Carpenters for that or anything? Well, this is an interesting story. <laughs> uh, take notes, because it is interesting. Okay. Um, I had a place in Lake Arrowhead, and that was my place I, I would go to to get away from it all and write. And I took the lady who is my wife today, she wasn't my wife at the time, but I went up there, the two of us, and I decided to write this song, Bless the Beasts and Children. I thought it was, to have it in the title was uh, made a lot of sense. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> so I, man, I wrote this song, Pointing a Finger at everyone, <laughs> you know, how we mistreat animals and children and how we take advantage and how they are defenseless. And it was, you know, this beautiful melody and I'm just sitting there pointing my finger at everyone saying, aren't you ashamed? Look at how we, what we do. 
So the next morning, I get up, it's all written, and I play it and sing the lyric. And I said, this is wrong. I mean, this beautiful melody and all I'm doing is preaching. So I did something that's very hard for a songwriter to do. I threw out all that work, threw out the entire lyric. I'm going to make this a simple blessing for children and animals. And so that's why, you know, bless the beasts and the children, for in this world they have no voice, they have no choice. Bless the beasts and the children, give them shelter from a storm, keep them safe, keep them warm. So basically, that was the idea, a simple blessing. And the counterpoint was the fact that they need all the help they can get, because that's the way the world is. And that worked. So then, back in L.A., uh, I, I talked to Stanley, and I, he wanted to hear the song. So I went and played the song. He loved it. So I said, Stanley, you know who should sing this? The Carpenters. And Stanley, God bless him, said, who are the Carpenters? And I said, <laughs> oh, Stanley, the Grammys are on this, this weekend. Watch the Grammys and then call me. So he watched the Grammys, called me, says, I want the Carpenters. <laughs> so I said, okay. I, I knew the Carpenters, and, and I, I knew their manager. So I called him up and arranged a meeting in Stanley's office at Columbia Pictures. So I'm sitting there just thinking, I'm something else, putting all this together. <laughs> and uh, Stanley is very charismatic. He goes on and on about the picture and all this. And Richard, who is a very serious young man, he, he, he looks at Stanley and he says, well, Mr. Kramer, that all sounds great, but uh, at this stage of our career, if, uh, if we think it's a hit, we'll record it. If we don't, we won't. So then Stanley says, go do a demo. So, okay, I went in and did a demo, singing it myself. And then he says, okay, I want the carpenters to hear this called the manager and said, uh, I have a demo. I want to, uh, I want to uh, fly to Las Vegas and play it for the Carpenters. And the manager got back and said, look, Mr. Kramer, with all due respect, Richard would prefer that you and Barry are not in the room while he's listening. And uh, so just uh, give it to me and I'll get it to them in Las Vegas. But Stanley was a hands-on guy. He says, no, no, I, I, I want to fly to Las Vegas. I just want to hand it to him. So that was Stanley. So Stanley said to me, Barry, let's go. We got on a plane. We went to Las Vegas. We met Richard in the lobby of the hotel. Stanley gave him the demo. And Richard said, thank you, Mr. Kramer, Barry, and left. So then Stanley and I went on, uh, on the crap tables and uh, didn't have much luck we were losing money and we got so focused in the losing money that we forgot to go to their show and when we looked up and realized that we said oh my god and so we ran there and we went backstage and Karen was there and of course we lied we said what a great show Karen oh my goodness this is terrific uh, and uh, we talked to her briefly but she said nothing about the song so that told me everything she didn't say, oh, we love this. Nothing. 
So, oh boy. So Stanley and I went to the coffee shop and we're sitting there, we're very glum because obviously I guess they weren't that impressed. And so we're, we're sitting there ordering something to eat and we see the carpenters come and I wave and they wave back and then they go to the other side of the dining room. This is not a good sign either, <laughs> you know? So I'm sitting here saying, well, damn. Anyway, the next thing I know, I look up and there's Richard Carpenter standing at our table. He said, hi, Barry. Hi, Richard. Uh, Mr. Kramer, we've listened to the song and I, I was bending my head, getting ready for the acts, he said, and um, we think it's a hit, we wanna do it. Bless the beef and the children For in this world they have no voice They have no choice Bless the beef and the children And then, you know, obviously we were nominated for an Academy Award, which we didn't win, but for a second picture to be nominated was pretty good. 
that song down the line that's on Blessed Peace and Children, whenever people ask me like what kind of vocals I like, I always play that song for them. Uh, like I love your singing voice so much and I haven't heard you sing except on that song. Well, I, I never had any aspirations to be a singer. I was always a songwriter, producer. I'm a, a perfectionist and my voice would never give me that kind of perfection. My voice is kind of different and uh and you know i sing in tune but for me it, it you know it wasn't great as it turns out some other people thought it was pretty good uh, rca signed me as a young guy and and then i was on columbia and i i had a hit with i wonder what she's doing tonight but i just i i didn't feel comfortable singing because i i didn't like my voice that much I didn't, a lot of confidence in it. That's funny, because when I first spoke to Terry Botkin Jr., uh, and it was, the first time I spoke to him was actually years ago by email, and I was telling him how much I liked your voice, and he was saying like, yeah, he should have sang more, he should have sang more, he has a great voice. I don't have a great voice, but <laughs> anyway, obviously you liked it, so I'm happy. the chance to speak with Barry DeVarzon's songwriting partner Perry Botkin Jr. when I was working on extras for Harry Nelson's animated TV movie The Point. And Perry spent much of that time basking in his recollections about Bless the Beasts and Children and the trajectory of what was then called Cotton's Theme. And this guy called me up and he said, you know that, uh, that song on your soundtrack album from that movie? And he, he said, it's, uh, I think it's called Cotton's Dream. He said, CBS is starting a, a, a soap opera and uh, they're looking for theme song music. And uh, he said, that music cue that you have in there, he said, 
And that's really kind of interesting. Would it be all right if I submitted that? And I laughed at him. I said, what do you mean, would it be all right? <laughs> well, of course it would. He had to laugh too. So he submitted it. And by golly, they took it and put it in their soap opera. That was 48 years ago. It was the young and the restless. is history <laughs> it was just that's it which shows what this business is like it's just a crapshoot and you never know what's going to come up what was it it was a i always call it my music cue m33 third reel third cue that was just what it was and it's by golly that sucker's still running Nadia Comaneci stole the hearts of the world, you know, with her slow motion performance on the double horizontal bars. And a music editor in New York needed something to play behind this slow motion film clip. And sure enough, he liked it. He put it behind the film clip. It became a giant hit and is probably the biggest copyright of my career. And that's the trick, you know, what is a hit? A hit is a combination of music and lyrics that touch your emotions. No matter how good it is, if it doesn't touch your emotions, you don't have a hit. So in retrospect, that little ingredient found a way, but it took a lot of luck, <laughs> an awful lot of luck. Your gun club is condemning this movie. We are condemning this movie, bless the beasts and children because it is a vicious attack upon the hunters of America. The gun buffs who will not be held up to ridicule. Do you feel, believe me, you feel this film will offend the rifle people? I do. Uh, just because we like to shoot a few buffalo now and then. Wouldn't slaughter be a better word? This is Bill Moomy, one of the stars of Bless the Beasts and Children. Is this film based on fact? Well, it... listen. Right now in Arizona, for $40, you can have the thrill of ripping off an American buffalo. We show this in the film. Man, they don't have a chance. I thought the buffalo were an endangered species. Well, they're, they're sort of endangered. Uh, these bleeding hearts are the idea that uh, shooting a game animal is like shooting something that thinks and feels. We call this the Bambi syndrome. Mm -hmm. Sure, the ecology freaks would probably go for it, but uh, 
wouldn't let my kids see Bless the Beasts and Children. Not unless I wanted them to grow up hating guns. The film was released with an unusual trailer written and directed by comedian and ad man Stan Freeberg, which pitted Bill Mooney against a fictional NRA spokesperson who grew increasingly uncomfortable throughout the commercial as Mooney challenged him about the grim tradition of the buffalo cult in Arizona. But despite its timely message, the film failed to find its audience. It was too mature and frightening for kids, and too heavy-handed for adults already committed to Stanley Kramer's causes. The University of North Carolina paper The Daily Tar Heel wrote that the great Hollywood liberal Stanley Kramer has taken on the ecology issue, and the result is surely the most embarrassingly stupid movie of the decade. Others felt it had corruptive potential. On its premiere in Salt Lake City, the film was promptly banned, the PR head of Brigham Young University, Heber Woolsey, saying it degraded Christ, presumably referring to the fact that the boys pretend to be in a traveling rock band called the Before Christs when some small-town bullies, including Crispin Glover's dad, character staple Bruce Glover, inquire about the BC on their identical yellow camp t-shirts. Furthermore, the film featured foul language and masturbation. If we are not careful, our children are likely to think these are typical activities in the United States, Woolsey said. Jesus Christ, you kids want to go blind? Now cut that out and go to sleep. Cotton's generation grew up with a war in the house. For them, games of cops and robbers and cowboys and Indians no longer satisfied the senses. A boy had but to turn a control to be totally involved in the violent distension of experience that was Vietnam on television. Cotton became addicted to it. Vietnam was even a portable war. A boy had but to move his personal TV set to have airstrikes in the living room, search and destroy operations in the bedroom, naval bombardment in the bathroom, napalm before school, body bags before dinner. Cotton carried a battle map in his brain. You can take your pick of films in the 1970s that dined on metaphors for the slaughter of America's youth in the wilds of Vietnam. Bless the Beasts and Children was far from alone in this sentiment that the availability of guns and the encouragement to kill for a nebulous cause was warping the country's moral compass. You can also take your pick of critical commentary on such films. But one such commentary on Bless the Beasts and Children stands out to me. It was written by Barry Robbins' sister, Elizabeth, as a user comment on the IMDb page for the film. I find it especially interesting that this movie came out in 1971, she says. Our country was enmeshed in a political upheaval from our involvement in the Vietnam War. Well, children were sent to fight and kill whether they liked it or not. They had no choice, they had no voice. I was five years old when my brother, Alan, was sent to fight at Vietnam. He would be there for a year and a half and return a completely different person. I believe Alan's spirit died in Vietnam along with all the other children. My other brother, however, would be Cotton, a starring role in the movie Blessed Beasts and Children. I was seven when I saw the screening preview for the actors and others who worked on the film. I was so proud of Barry, 
The end made my mother and I cry every time. I knew it was just a movie, my mother assuring me, it's just ketchup, Elizabeth, not real blood. But maybe, for me, it was a way to prepare. It was what was to become a reality for me. Only 15 years later, I would watch my brother die. The irony was that what surrounded his death was also that he was an outcast, different from others, a societal reject, similar to the character he played and the theme of Bless the Beasts and Children. In 1986, Barry died from complications from the AIDS virus. It was pretty early on when people were diagnosed with this, so me and my mother told everyone it was cancer, fearful of their reaction at that time. But the true ending of the movie wasn't just that someone died. It is that he did what he believed, despite all odds. Even at seven, I could see the triumph as the buffalo were set free. He did it. He accomplished his goal. And you know what? In my brother's life that ended too soon, he too accomplished his goal. He was an amazing actor and an amazing person who touched the lives of everyone who knew him. There will be critics who say I'm sounding off again about the gun laws, said Kramer in a 1971 interview. I don't like guns, and I'm very much in favor of a gun law myself. But the central theme of Bless the Beasts and Children is the idea of these misfit boys being able to commit one positive act which makes them have identity again. In an afterword to a reissue of the book Bless the Beasts and Children, Miles Swarthout quoted his father in comparing the book to Lord of the Flies by saying that it is a kind of rebuttal. This book has the idea that people are not bestial in nature, he continues. It is just the opposite of Lord of the Flies. The idea is, if you isolate boys with the right combination of circumstances, they will do great things. There is an epilogue to this story. It's not connected to Bless the Beasts and Children at all, save for sharing a protagonist in Bill Mooney. I asked him about his participation in an episode of Insight, which was a Christian anthology show that ran from 1960 to 1983, addressing contemporary moral, spiritual, and existential problems. 
Bill's episode was called The Party, and it debuted in syndication the same year as Bless the Beasts and Children. In the episode, he stars alongside one of my favorite actresses, the enigmatic Joy Bang, whose short career included memorable roles in Messiah of Evil and Pretty Maids all in a row. And so then just the last thing was, if you remember anything about Joy Bang, she's an actress I really like, and I've had a lot of trouble finding out any information about her. You know, it's funny that you ask that because um, Joy was uh, a wonderful gal. Um, we, I use the word lightly, but we dated for a bit. Um, we hung out. Uh, she had this wonderful sheepdog named Ty, and she had this raspy voice and this beautiful smile. And she was probably four, like four years older than me. And she was a very free spirit, a very free, loving lady. And, she, and uh, I, I, I enjoyed my time with, with Joy very much. Um, I had been told in like 1975 that she had committed suicide. And I was so depressed about that for like <laughs> 40 years. And then I found out that, was, that wasn't true <laughs> and that she had been working in a medical office. She had moved back to the Midwest. Uh, her real name is Joy Winner. And um, she was fine. And I actually wrote a song about it. I was so happy to know that uh, she was fine all those years. And she had just said, no, Hollywood, I'm not going to let Hollywood eat me up or whatever. I'm going to just slip on away. And, and I guess there was a rumor for years around town that, oh, no, no, she's, she left this mortal coil. But she didn't. And I was just so happy to know that and I, I actually wanted to try to reach out to her. I wrote this song about her, but um, I, I never did successfully uh, reconnect with her. What was the song that you wrote about, about her? Um, the song that I wrote about Joy is called She Came to Hollywood and it's on an album of mine called Velour. And uh, that can be found anywhere. You know, I mean, you can hear it on YouTube or you can download it or you can buy the album. But uh, yeah, that's only a couple of years old. And yeah, it's called that makes Keep me very album. happy to hear that. It made me very happy to write it. I really did spend so many years thinking, I wish she would have just called me, you know? If she was depressed, I wish she would have just found me because, uh, you know, I had nothing but pleasant memories of, of her. And uh, I, was, I was very depressed about that. I mean, you know, you move on after you hear something sad, but uh, boy, when you find out, no, man, she's fine. That was 40 years ago, she's cool. I was like, oh my God, thank you, thank you, thank you. She had a smoky voice She had a toothy smile She came to Hollywood She turned 22 And she was running wild 
out here in Hollywood. We got together a couple of times. Nothing ever felt better. She drove a stick shift car. She made time worthwhile. She came to Hollywood. Got some TV shows. She made some movies too. Out here in Hollywood, and we got together just a couple of times. Nothing ever felt better. listening to A Song from the Heart Beats the Devil Every Time, a podcast that explores kids' film and television through interviews with the folks who brought these projects to life. This episode was written, edited, and narrated by me, Kayla Janice, and special thanks are due to Bill Mooney, Miles Chapin, Barry DeVorzone, and Perry Botkin Jr., who passed away in 2021. You can see a full list of music and other links at asongfromtheheart.podbean.com. Or see my website, kaylajanice.com, for more on my work, if you can figure out how to spell it. Until next time, thank you for listening. (laughs) 